Yeah, so Dennis already stole a little bit of my fire. And we're going to see if this is going to roll for us today. Because I'm big on visuals. Why are you here? I mean, I don't mean that in a philosophical, I don't mean that in an existential way, as in what's the meaning of life or what's your cosmic or divine purpose. I mean, why are you here right now? I mean, you got a gorgeous beach an hour to the west, you got awesome mountain trails to the east, you got malls, you got coffee houses, you got restaurants in every direction, you got Disneyland just down the road. So, out of all the places you could be right now, why are you here? In the morning of a weekly break in much of the Western world. Now, if your answer is anything at all like, well, I or we always go to church, I have a follow-up question, and that is, what do you really mean by this thing called church that you say you go to? See, I believe the word church refers to one of two fundamental things. There is the global and eternal church, and there are local and temporary churches. Both are part of God's careful eternal design. The global and eternal church is made up, from people, made up of people from all around the world, from all throughout human history, who have genuinely come to know Jesus Christ as the only way to the only living and eternal God. And this is part of a thing called Redemption Hill, a local and temporary church that makes up part of the global and eternal church. And when many, if not most people, talk about going to church, they consciously or subconsciously mean coming to a time like this. And for many, this and what happens here and now is church, period. Hear me clearly. I, I believe this is a crucial part of church, but it is not the sum total of church. And it breaks my heart to see what seems to be a growing number of people walking away from the local and temporary church. And many leave the local church over disappointment, disagreement, or dissatisfaction related to one part or one person of one particular local church. And some have a list of things that are or were wrong in a local church they were part of or they heard about. And when many walk away from church, they ultimately walk away from God. Now, others believe if they get together with three or four people on a Friday night for a couple of beers and talk about faith, that is church. They often consciously or subconsciously overemphasize the global and eternal church and overlook or deny what the New Testament sets in motion that underlines the crucial role of the local and the temporary church. At the same time, many people have an unhealthy view of the local and temporary church. They don't seem to know, they don't seem to care 
they could and should be part of something beyond the walls of what they often quite proudly call their church. But the bottom line is this and what happens here is church for many people, period. And if they tell someone they go to church or they have a church, they only think about what happens here during this time. Now, this time here is intentionally set aside to allow a space for people to seek and to find God, to shut down everything else for an hour or two together with others. And that is called gathered worship. It is a crucial part of, but it is not synonymous with church. There are 168 hours in a week, and church needs to extend into the other 166 hours of the week. People who come here to gathered worship scatter to this crazy variety of places throughout this community and beyond. Thank God for that testimony. And as I dug into 1 Peter for our study today, I found something at the heart of those other 166 hours. And it's just one short phrase in the 11 verses that were set aside for today in the original outline for this series. And I don't know if you take advantage of the digital audio of the messages available online at all three Redemption Hill campuses, but as I continue reading and studying this letter, I really appreciate what the variety of teachers have uncovered. But there in the midst of it all, One phrase from where we are this week really grabbed my attention. And at first, it just kind of seemed so out of place, it caught me by surprise. And it says, above all, or in another Bible, most important of all. A phrase like that really jumps out at me when I'm digging into the kind of truth you find throughout this letter. And when someone like Peter writes, above all, or most important of all, you don't exactly need to be a seminary professor to know, you just might want to pay attention to what follows. Above all. Keep loving one another earnestly. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. God bless you. Have a great week. (laughs) The word for earnestly there was really intense. It was really passionate. And the way Peter wrote, keep loving Keep loving made it clear he would have intended it to extend into all 168 hours of the week, which obviously would include this time. And I've been around local churches long enough to know it can be uniquely hard to keep loving others in gathered worship. Um, Stumbled onto this. Maybe it doesn't look all that clear back in the old days, but we've never used a ram's horn in worship before. Some of you giggled a little more than others. Thank you for that. 
But, you know, it can be disturbingly easy to have a dangerous mindset from out there follow us in here. And it's this often subtle mentality that makes me matter more to me than anyone else does. I can't think of anything that quickly, deeply, and repeatedly exposed my self-centeredness like getting married. I believe gathered worship often exposes the same thing. And when people talk about disappointments or frustrations with church, they're often specifically thinking about this time. And they're often ultimately talking about what they didn't get, maybe mentally, maybe emotionally, maybe socially, maybe relationally. Maybe they didn't get your favorite donut. This is not the time for meeting needs. Other than the core need we have to learn about, to learn from, to remember, and to worship God. Beyond that, it seems like the Bible repeatedly says we're supposed to be more concerned about what others get. Even what others get out of this time than what we get out of this. And as I was working on this, someone sent me one of the most convicting articles I've seen in a really long time, and it included this sentence, and it just hammered me. The consequence of creating an entertainment-based church culture, that's what the article was about, is that ministry practitioners are often seen as the stars of the show while those in the seats tend to view themselves as paying customers waiting to be entertained. pastor that I've never met named Vodi Bauckham often says, if you can't say amen, you ought to at least say ouch. See, that entertainment-based mindset is often behind what people are really saying when they talk about what they didn't or what they don't get from church because it can be easy to consciously or subconsciously scrutinize what happens in here like some kind of a Simon Cowell or, or, or the judge from any other of the number of things his original show started. As I mentioned, I believe genuine gathered worship is the foundation of the local and the temporary church. And it's the base for what happens in the other 166 hours of the week. And those other 166 hours are where we can learn to keep on loving one another, even earnestly. And, and I got to say, the foundation you all have here with life groups excites me as much as anything I've found, anything I've heard about in any North American church. 
beyond that, I've had the privilege of hearing a number of stories of how people around here keep on loving one another earnestly. Again, praise God for that testimony. I pray as much as anything around here, that becomes really contagious. And, you know, it can start or it can be fed by something as seemingly simple as just lingering for a few moments after gathered worship and risking or investing the time to simply talk to someone or or heading to the kind of picnic that's going on after we finished gathered worship today. What an awesome thing to go to after a time like this. See, I believe one of the most commonly misunderstood or misused Bible verses is Hebrews 10.25. And it's where the writer talks about not neglecting to meet together. And many, if not most of the time, I hear that verse used It emphasizes the phrase meet together, and it seems to confine it to a set time and a set place, almost always referring to a time like this. We need to be very careful to not limit that verse to some kind of a command that deals just with attendance in this time of gathered worship. I mean, all through the book of Hebrews, I see powerful illustrations of how important this time is. But I believe in that verse, the writer was challenging us as Christians about something that touches all 168 hours of the week, not just a set time for a meeting. The whole portion in Hebrews begins by pleading with Christians to learn to become increasingly aware of the presence of the living, eternal God wherever we are, and to continue to learn to realize what it means to walk aware of that presence all 168 hours of the week. And I believe verse 25 of chapter 10 in Hebrews calls Christians to learn to use all of our time, our moments or our hours together to help one another become or to stay more aware of God's presence. A guy by the name of J.B. Phillips, you may have seen the Phillips translation of the Bible, He wrote a lot of his version of the Bible to try to help a youth group understand the Bible in language they would be more accustomed to. And this particular youth group often got together to study in a bomb shelter in London while World War II raged around them. Nice place for a youth group meeting, right? powerful setting for words like these. Let us do all we can to help one another's faith. Thought of a group of teenagers in the midst of a world war magnifies how much we need one another. And there's that little phrase again. The writer of Hebrews, much like Peter, 
would have been constantly and painfully aware of that need, especially because at the time they wrote, Christians were facing all kinds of relational and verbal and even physical abuse for what they believed. And the writers pleaded with Christians to keep coming together. Although they knew we need more than to just come together because just because we're together doesn't mean we have authentic biblical community. You go back to today's core statement, above all, keep loving one another earnestly. That has to mean we can love one another in ways no one else can. That shouldn't sound arrogant. That should sound really humbled. I've hung out with some of the men from the Muslim community in Ecuador. I've gotten to know a number of people deeply into the LGBT community. This week, some of us had a special opportunity to spend time with people from the homeless community. And I hear them talk about their love for one another. And it often looks like they do love one another earnestly. Sometimes even more than it looks or sounds like we do. But there's a kind of community built on the kind of love we have all longed for since the first people lost it when they were removed from the Garden of Eden. And I'm more convinced than ever building that kind of community is really hard. But it's really essential. In order to have the kind of life God really wants us to have and to be able to find and to cling to hope in a hostile world. Maybe think of calling a sermon series that sometime. And at risk of sounding like a pastor giving a stock church line, grace-given faith in Jesus sets biblical community apart from all other communities because faith in who Jesus is and what Jesus did opens the door to the supernatural work the Holy Spirit is here to do in us and among us to make us more loving and more lovable. But even with him doing that, building biblical community is often messy. Sometimes very messy, but it is so crucial. And that makes my thoughts drift to something pastor and writer David Platt got me thinking about in a whole new way. Uh, It's a massive ship anchored not far from here. Queen Mary. You seen it? Being born and raised on the Canadian prairies, the first time I saw it, I was like, when the Queen Mary was launched in 1936, it was considered like the ocean liner, much bigger than the Titanic. It had 12 decks. It could hold almost 1,200 passengers who were almost only extremely wealthy. 
But when World War II broke out, the Queen Mary was converted into a massive personnel carrier. And where pampered passengers once lounged, soldiers were squeezed on for a trip across the ocean to war. And over the course of six years, 750,000 U.S. soldiers were carried to war. And after the war ended, the ship was turned back into a cruise liner. And for the next two decades, it went back to carrying some of the wealthiest people around the world. It was retired in 1967, and it became one of the most popular museums in this country. Um, Parts of it were turned into luxurious restaurants, hotel rooms, so you can tour it, you can eat on it, you can stay overnight on it, or you can get a package deal to do all of the above. And Pastor David Platt went from pastoring a local church to leading one of the largest mission agencies in the world. But something that hasn't changed is the way he uses the Queen Mary as an illustration to challenge us to think about how we are often tempted to see the church. To ask ourselves, do we see ourselves as passengers, tourists, Visitors, shoppers, browsers, temporary guests, even paid workers, or soldiers in a very, very real battle. Across much of the so-called developed world, the church is often seen as a cruise ship, a hotel, a restaurant, and God forbid, a museum. It's rarely seen, it's rarely approached as something crucial to a war. Boy, I'm tempted to go off on a tangent. We so often fight the wrong battles in the war. Holy Spirit, keep me on the path here. It's rarely seen and approached as something crucial to a war, something to draw us together, something to prepare us to fight the right things the right way. Men, the ones referred to earlier, thank you for your example. May it be contagious. David Platt wrote, we're settling for a Christianity that revolves around catering to ourselves when the central message of Christianity is actually about abandoning ourselves. And more than ever in my life, as a pastor, I want to walk with people who are willing to abandon themselves, to risk investing what is really necessary to build the kind of true community we all really long for. And the cool thing is I keep hearing the same core desire from your core leaders. That's why I think you're on the verge of something really extraordinary out of this little spot. (laughs) Building biblical community is messy and it's hard because... 
we're messy and we're hard. Like the way pastor and author Jonathan Dodson refers to things like um, your life groups. He calls them communities of imperfect people clinging to a perfect Christ. Does that sound like the kind of team you could sign up for? (laughs) If you want further evidence, as uncomfortable as it may be, further evidence of the imperfect part, look at the second part of the verse I've been focusing on. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. One Bible commentary says the covering of sins is the ability spirit-filled and empowered believers have to forgive one another because Christ has forgiven them. We don't dare miss what that's saying. It's like, welcome to Redemption Hill, home to a multitude of sins. And people who need to keep remembering how much God loves them so they can keep on loving one another. See, the Holy Spirit longs to do what Jesus promised he would do, work among us, work in us, so biblical community continues to be built. And as we seek to grow in our understanding of what it means to keep on loving one another earnestly, I believe we all need to learn and or remember we are to learn to care about everyone, but we cannot care for everyone. I see a lot of you wrestling with that tension. We are to care about everyone, but folks, I'm the chief of all sinners on this when it comes to church life. We cannot individually care for everyone. And learning the difference between those two can be really hard. And it connects with another crucial part of this. I believe we need to personalize and we need to apply many of the Apostle Paul's prayers, including this one, when he said, It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. See, getting to know people well enough to see who they really are and how they're really wired will impact the way we care about them. And as we grow in the way we care about them, we will often find ways to care for them. And this may be really obvious, but it's really hard to get to know one another without getting together. I don't know about you, but the two main things that get in the way of getting together with others in my life are schedules and screens. Man, busyness fills our schedules. We seem to place this disturbingly high value on busyness. It's as though we've subtly bought a lie that says our worth is measured by how busy we are. But we can get so busy with everyone, we don't have much eh, real time for anyone. And along with schedules, I mentioned screens. 
Screens of all sizes make it easier to make more connections with more people more easily and more quickly than at any time in history. We are more connected with more people than ever, and it is easier to find people with common interests than ever, to find more communities. But all kinds of studies show many people feel more alone and more unknown than at any time in human history. We're connected more widely than ever before. But most of us are not connected very deeply with anyone. And Texas pastor Matt Chandler says we were designed to be interwoven, to need one another for maturity. To sharpen, heard this earlier, right? One another like iron sharpens iron, but beware. That can include heat. That can include sparks, and that can even include some banging. Right, men? Chandler says, we were designed to be interwoven, to encourage, to rebuke, to edify, to confront, to show hospitality to, and to walk with each other. Did you notice some of the words he used were actually kind of tough? It's not like, welcome to church, here's your Nerf paddle. Don't hurt anyone. The kind of connection we need to find in biblical community does not allow us to ignore, does not allow us to deny, does not even allow us to downplay sin. And we, we all stumble in many ways. But the kind of connection we need to find in biblical community does not allow us to ignore does not allow us to deny, does not allow us to downplay sin, especially unrepentant sin. Because sin can easily become like this really ugly, oozing tumor. I, I call, well, something is not right there. I hope you catch this metaphor. I, I often call sin a spiritual cancer. Imagine a guy who's been at one of your life groups a few times, and one night he lifts up his shirt and he shows this massive, ugly, oozing tumor on his stomach. What if people shriek in horror and run out of the room, leave the guy all by himself? What if someone says, oh, dude, that is really ugly. Would you just pull your shirt back down so we can get on with the study? What if somebody says, dude, that's really ugly. Man, I, I hope it gets better for you. Let, it, let us know how it goes for you. What if everyone lifts up their shirts and says, it's okay, we're not into judging here. We all have ugly oozing tumors. Oops, that's judging. You want to touch ours? Maybe we can go for coffee later and show our tumors to other people. No, see, none of those illustrate the biblical way to deal with sin. When someone risks letting you know about it. It's very similar if it has to do with a tumor, a sin you notice in someone 
and he or she may not even be aware of it. You know, you kind of have to have that hard conversation. It's like, dude, um, it, it seems like you don't notice this, but dot, dot, dot. It's like if you and I go swimming, you notice this little ugly oozing spot between my shoulder blades where I can't reach, I can't even see. I know it can be awkward to even mention it, but you know what? You mentioning it could save my life. And I don't know if you've noticed this, but people who don't really want biblical community will show you their tumor, their wound, their sin, but they won't let anyone close enough to actually try to take care of it. Over the years, I've noticed many of those people tend to show their tumors to a lot of people, but only enough to get sympathy, never enough to get any real help. Yeah? And again, something one of Jesus' brothers wrote should unify us much more than it does, and we just saw it there. Folks, we all stumble in many ways. I go back to that line at Pastor Dodson's about communities of imperfect people clinging to a perfect Christ. They're communities where people begin to believe they're safe, to be honest about what's really going on inside themselves and in their lives. But that verse in James is not saying God looks at my stumbles, looks at my sins, and just says, oh, well, you know, boys will be boys. It's okay. No. He wants us to have communities where people begin to care about someone so much, they want to care for him or her by speaking tenderly yet firmly, when they have reason to be concerned about him or her, even to bring up some sin, and then to commit to walk with him or her, lovingly pursuing healing. But I come back to what I opened with. Gathered worship typically is not the time and the place for that sort of thing. Gathered worship is the time and the place where you're together with a whole bunch of people who are challenged to do what we sang going into the speaking part, and that is turn our eyes upon Jesus to look full on His wonderful face. And as we do that, at least for a little bit, all the stuff out there can just grow strangely dim. Then there are the other 166 hours, which begin in just a few moments. And Jesus, as much as we want to turn our eyes upon you in this place, we need to turn our eyes upon you as we go from here. And I know the song... John and the other choir leaders have lined up is often used, I would almost say dangerously focused on a time and a place like this, and that's good, but it can't end here. 
A commitment to follow Jesus doesn't just bring us to an altar. A commitment to follow Jesus doesn't just get us to check a box on a card or pray a prayer. A decision to follow Jesus extends into all 168 hours of the week. Keep teaching us as we sing.